0: This is the Humarian Health Podcast.
1: Spilling our guts for the well-being of yours.
0: This is the Humarian Health Podcast. Uh, this is Dr. Sean Benzinger here again with uh, Amy Baker. <laughs> And we're uh, happy to be back with you after um, you know the events of the year have uh, certainly slowed a lot of things down that everyone's been doing in the United States. Uh, But today we're here with a very special guest, uh, Dr. Amy Tofigi, who is the author of "What You Must Know About Strokes." And first of all, I wanted to welcome uh, Dr. Tofigi to the program.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, uh, I guess the first thing is why write a book about strokes.
2: So stroke is the uh, leading cause of disability in the world, and it's the fifth leading cause of death in the United States. And yet few people know what to do when they're having stroke symptoms um, or how to prevent a stroke. The good news is four out of five strokes can actually be prevented through changes in lifestyle. Hmm. So there's five factors that... um, Account, account for eight. Sorry, I'll, I'll go back on that. There are five factors that account for 80% of strokes, and they are high blood pressure, smoking, diet, physical activity or inactivity, and abdominal obesity. Hmm. And so, the reason we wanted to write this book about stroke is really to educate everyone about what a stroke is, what they can do to prevent a stroke, and what to do if they're having symptoms of strokes to prevent the um, effects of strokes. Um, We have great treatments available, and if somebody does have a stroke, we wanted to guide them through the recovery process and help them to prevent another stroke.
1: What a great topic. I mean, that's, really is. I mean, I, I feel like and I think you actually talk about this a little bit in your book or, or I've, I've seen it somewhere that there's been so much education around what to do if you have a heart attack. That's right. But there's not really been a lot of discussion about stroke. And so um, maybe just can you take a couple minutes and share with us kind of exactly what a stroke is and maybe start to introduce us to, you know, kind of what those signs might be? Is that a good a good place to start to help us sort of understand what we might be facing if, I mean, it could be us or it could be a loved one that we see experiencing stroke-like symptoms.
2: Absolutely. So let's start with what a stroke is. There are two main types of stroke. There's uh, one, the first type is called ischemic stroke. Mm -hmm. This is where a blood clot blocks an artery going to the brain Mm-hmm. and prevents the brain from getting oxygen in that area. Okay. The other type is a hemorrhagic stroke, which is a bleeding stroke, where a blood vessel in the brain or on the surface of the brain bursts, and there's bleeding into or on the surface of the brain. Okay. Now, the majority of strokes are ischemic strokes, about 85%, and then 15% are the bleeding-type strokes. The risk factors, for the most part, are the same, although there are a few risk factors that are unique to each, and we can talk about those later. Mm -hmm. Um, But the main signs of stroke, depending on where in the brain the stroke occurs, one's going to have different symptoms. And so that's why it's a little bit more complicated in terms of uh, knowing the different signs and symptoms of stroke because the brain obviously does so many different things Mm -hmm. but a really good um way to remember signs and symptoms of stroke is uh the mnemonic fast f-a-s-t face is for uh, f is for face which is uh drooping of the face Mm -hmm. and um so if you think someone might be having a stroke or you think you might be having a stroke uh, a good thing to do is to ask the person to smile or to smile in a mirror, and see if one side is drooping.
1: Mm, okay. Or,
2: the second one is arm, and that stands for arm uh, arm weakness. And so, what you would do is you would ask the person to lift their arms up and see if one arm drifts down, or if they can't lift one arm arm up. S is for speech and um with stroke you can have different types of speech difficulties you can have slurred speech or you can have language difficulties where you have difficulty understanding or speaking mm. so ask the person to repeat a simple phrase like today is a nice day and see if they can understand what you're saying and also if they can get the words out and okay. if the words sound slurred
1: okay
2: and t is for time which is time to call 911 and It's really important to remember to call 911 if you have any of these stroke symptoms or if you see somebody having stroke symptoms because we have treatments for stroke that are time dependent. Mm. And if you or your loved one goes to the hospital by car and then checks in, it's gonna take a lot of time and you might be sitting in the waiting room for hours. Um, But if you call 911, the paramedics are trained to recognize stroke symptoms, and then they call the hospital ahead of time telling them that um, they have someone with a potential stroke coming in, and the whole team will be ready. In addition, throughout most of the United States, there are hospitals that are are designated stroke centers, Hmm. and these hospitals meet certain criteria to be able to manage strokes quickly and efficiently. Gotcha. And so, there's many reasons that you should call nine one one for stroke symptoms.
1: Okay. And so, when you think about what we've learned from a heart attack perspective, like crushing feeling in the chest and things like that, that's completely separate than the factors that you or the symptoms you talked about from a stroke perspective. So, is that absolutely okay? Um,
2: you uh, you can get headaches with strokes. Um, but, um, since you can get headaches, uh, from a lot of other things, it's not one of the key things that we ask people to spot unless it's a sudden onset headache.
1: Gotcha. So the best
2: way to, to remember it is just fast face, arm, speech, time to call 911.
1: Great. And you alluded to the fact that there are many different treatments available. Some are time sensitive, and mm-hmm. that would lead me to believe that maybe some are more like long acting, long term. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of what someone might experience from a treatment perspective if they were, so they called 911, they got the ambulance ride, they've been diagnosed, kind of what the what the options are um, in treatment?
2: Yes. So we have um, these medications called thrombolytics, um, which are clot-busting drugs. So if you have an ischemic stroke, the one that doesn't have bleeding in the brain, um, the, we have thrombolytic agents that can be given within four and a half hours of symptom onset mm-hmm. so this is a medication that's given through uh, an IV and um, takes about there's two different types one just takes a minute and the other one takes an hour to infuse mm-hmm. and studies have shown that patients who get that medication are 30% less likely to be disabled at three months Oh
0: wow! and
2: so wow they have better outcomes than those who do not uh, get the, the the medication. There are some criteria that patients would have to meet. We do a CAT scan and make sure that there's no bleeding in the brain and the stroke isn't too big. Mm-hmm. And there are a few other criteria. The biggest one is time since symptom onset, mm-hmm. and that's why it's so important to call 911. The other type of medication is a... Uh, Clot retrie- uh, Sorry, it's not a medication. The other treatment is clot retrieval. And with clot retrieval, um, an interventionalist will actually go into the artery that's blocked and pull out the clot. Mm. Uh, most studies have shown that that treatment should be done within six hours. But in certain scenarios, the treatment can be done up to 24 hours out.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So it sounds like not only following the FAST principles and calling 911, but also making a note of when, if it's, if it's you or more likely it probably a loved one, is starting to see potential symptoms is to kind of be aware of when those might have started so that you can have that information for the doctors when you get to the hospital.
2: Absolutely. So yeah. one of the key things that we ask is when was the person last known well? So mm-hmm. we want to know when the person was speaking, walking, moving normally, mm-hmm. um, so that that helps us de- define when to start the clock.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
0: So are the the thrombolytic drugs are those reasonably new?
2: Sorry, can you say that again? Are they
0: reasonably new drugs? Are those within the last five, ten years, or?
2: Um, So, actually, uh, thrombolytics have been used in the past for other indications, um, such as heart attack, Um, and for stroke, they've been around for um, almost 30 years. They were approved for stroke um, 24 years ago. Um, So, they have been around for quite a while, um, and yet the proportion of people who get them is still fairly yeah, low because yeah. people don't get to the hospital in time.
0: Well, and and so it, I would, That's the only reason why I brought it up is because I've only heard in the last three to five years that I've heard more and more cases of they use the thrombolytic and uh, and the amount of neurologic damage was minimized drastically associated with it and they're healthy and feel pretty good and and you just didn't hear those stories, um, you know, that much in the past. And it made me wonder if it was the timing or was it the um, uh, frequency of use or, or not. So they're available, but it had to do with the timing of the patient.
2: Exactly. Okay. And right. over the years, um, hospitals across the U.S. have become more adept at having systems in, in place to administer the medication very quickly because there are several steps that need to be taken before administering the drug, such as getting the CAT scan. Um, right. So it's a combination of improving people's awareness of stroke symptoms so they get to the hospital in time and also making hospitals ready to, and even uh, ambulances and paramedics um, educating them about how to spot a stroke, what to do, where to take them, and um, developing all those systems of care from the emergency medical services standpoint and the um, hospital standpoint. Gotcha.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um, and you've list, you have listed earlier uh, smoking, high blood pressure, diet, inactivity, belly fat, basically, um, as kind of those really big markers. You would think that it being... This being the leading cause of disability, the amount of money and time and quality of life lost is so extensive, being its number one. It is amazing to me that just uh, heart attacks is pretty much, and not in your realm, of course, but that's what you hear all the time. That uh, Amy mentioned that earlier. It's just that's, that's what's discussed, and it should be discussed at the exact same time that heart attacks are discussed, wouldn't you think?
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, heart attacks are the leading cause of death. Right, so that's um, where they get primary. So they, uh, heart attacks obviously need to be discussed, mm-hmm. but uh, stroke is equally as important with respect to disability mm-hmm. um, and the effects it has on patients, families, communities. Um, and so it, it's incredibly important to talk about it, to educate people, and let people know that there is so much that can be done to prevent it. I think uh, in the past, people often thought that it's family history, and if they don't have strokes in, in their family, they don't need to worry about it. But in fact, the majority of strokes are caused by things that are under the control of somebody.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right, mm-hmm. yeah. It's standard of living. It 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 keeps coming back over and over and over. It, it doesn't seem to matter if you're talking about uh, cancer risks, uh, heart disease risk, or other types of diseases. The ones you've mentioned is like okay, you want to not have majority of diseases. Correct these five things. That's kind of what it sounds like.
2: Yes. And, you know, those. The, there's other risk factors, obviously, for strokes, such as diabetes and abnormal cholesterol um, and an irregular heart rhythm. Uh, many of those are really caused, such as diabetes and um, high cholesterol, caused by those lifestyle factors, such as diet and physical activity and abdominal
0: obesity. Yeah, that does make Mm -hmm. sense. Now, we've done a lot better job on high blood pressure. Uh, Medications are used much more frequently, more I would say quicker, in the line of uh, patient care. And uh, the only pushback I've heard back from some other types of physicians um, uh, over time is that if you're taking a 70-year-old person and you're giving them blood pressure of an 18-year-old, that strokes go up. Is there any indicator of that?
2: Um, sorry, can you
0: repeat that, please? Yeah. Uh, so the the concept is it used to be years ago used to take uh, your systolic and take 100 plus your age, and that's kind of, hey, you don't want to go above that. That's the, the old standards, right? And now we're trying to make sure everybody's 120 over 80 uh, blood pressure. But the amount of blood pressure medications that are being given to, let's say, a 70-year-old that may have 155 over whatever and we've seen some indicators that some physicians were concerned that they believed that stroke victims were increasing because we're lowering blood pressure, creating part of the problem. Is there any indicator in that research? I'm just kind of kind of poo-pooing the idea.
2: So uh, there's been a lot of discussion about what the ideal blood pressure range is mm-hmm. and if it should differ by age right. and uh, by comorbidities such as whether or not they have diabetes the fact is that um with with decreases in blood pressure for every 10 millimeter mercury decrease in blood pressure you reduce your risk of stroke by 40 Mm percent so that's pretty phenomenal right um so our current guidance is to keep the blood pressure below 130 over 80 um It it is possible in many people that you can actually, and it's probably advisable to go lower, but um, and that's for someone who's already had a stroke. Let me clarify. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you mentioned, normal blood pressure is less than one hundred twenty over eighty. So. There are concerns about side effects of medications in older individuals, mm-hmm. um, and so it's important to just keep an eye on a potential side effects. But in general, as a rule, I would say lower blood pressure is better, and um, you're not increasing the risk of stroke by lowering blood pressure.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Cool. So COVID's around. I, don't, I think it'll be around forever Um, but let's put it this way, I don't think it's going anywhere. Is there, there have been some indicators that the virus does and could affect the nervous system and vascular system in certain people. Have you seen that and is there some concerns as that being an ongoing problem?
2: So there are strokes associated with COVID. Uh, There are many possible mechanisms by which that's happening. COVID increases inflammation in the body, and inflammation is associated with stroke. In addition, it um, makes the blood prone to clotting, and so you can get clots in, in the arteries of the brain, and you can get clots in the veins that can actually go through the heart and um, reach the brain. So there are many possible ways that COVID can cause stroke. And so we are seeing strokes due to COVID, and then we're also seeing a lot of patients who have strokes who happen to have COVID.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: Very interesting. So um, you know the ramifications of disability um, that comes out of this—it it rocks many people's worlds. I mean, it just changes. Many times, it might be the the breadwinner of the family. All of a sudden, they can't work uh, because one of their limbs doesn't do what they needed to do to do their profession. Um, that amount of trauma on a on a family is is huge. Is there? Are there, are there books, indicators, education systems that actually help the, that caregiver deal with and, and adapt and move through these type of situations?
2: There are a lot of resources for caregivers. Um, as you mentioned, caregivers often um, really face a lot of the burden of stroke, um, both emotionally and uh, just change, it changes their lives, and um, stroke changes the lives of, of everyone around them. So there are a few things I would recommend. One is physical speech and occupational therapists work uh, closely with um, not only patients but also their loved ones um, to help patients, uh, help their loved ones manage patients with stroke so that you know how, how to uh, take care of them at home. Uh, the second uh, resource is um, social workers. Uh, and um, psychologists um, both in the hospital and after the hospital um, to help with uh, many of the needs Um, in addition there are stroke support groups Um, the American Heart Association actually has a um, if you check out their website you can find so uh, stroke support groups in your area Um, they can be um, extremely helpful And even in the setting of COVID, some of them are meeting remotely. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the other thing that I would really point out is that social support is um, really important. So this is a time to reach out to family, to friends, to loved ones, and try to develop a support system uh, so that um Both the patient and um, the caregivers aren't alone in this journey because um, it really helps to have a community to help.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah. And we see that with a lot of different disease states, the need for your community at large to kind of come around you, and that's yeah. honestly can be really hard for some people because they're not used to accepting help, but I think sure. that is certainly a very important. Um, aspect of just ongoing recovery and support for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mm-hmm. guess I'm curious too about, so as someone who maybe we're caring for somebody who has a stroke or whatever, kind of, do you have thoughts or recommendations on diet, nutritional supplements, um, nutritional supplements? Like how should they, how should they sort of re-architect if they, if they don't have healthy habits, how should they re-architect their life in that respect going forward after a stroke?
2: the key uh, recommendation would be to have a very clean healthy diet so what I mean by that is to avoid processed foods to avoid sugar and added salt um, and to eat a lot of fresh ingredients so um, fresh fresh fruits and vegetables lean meats um, the there, there have been several di- uh, diets studied for stroke prevention, such as low-fat diet, uh, Mediterranean diet. And the Mediterranean diet is the one diet that has been shown to reduce the risk of stroke. Oh. And there are different definitions of the Mediterranean diet, but the mm-hmm. one that was used in, in this study, which is called the PREDIMED study, is three servings of fr- fresh fruit a day, two or more servings of vegetables a day, at least three servings of fish, especially fatty fish, a week, Mm. Mm. three or more servings of legumes a week, two servings of sofrito, Mm -hmm. four tables of olive oil a day, or uh, three or more servings of tree nuts a week. Mm. And um, choosing white meat instead of red meat and switching to whole grains rather than refined grains. And for those of you who don't know what sofrito is, it's um, sautéed garlic and sometimes onions in a tomato sauce. Um, And so you just—it's really simple to make. You just um, sauté garlic and onions in tomato sauce. And some variations of sofrito will add other vegetables such as bell peppers. And it it can be used as. A sauce over seafood or with vegetables, um, but uh, the thought is that it's probably the garlic um, that has some healthy properties.
0: Makes mm. sense. Yeah. It really does. You know, years ago there was a book written by uh, Dr. Esselstein. I think that's his last name, and and uh, he was um, a cardiac surgeon out of Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, uh, and he. At 55, sewed up his last um, bypass, and he said, "You know, these people are ending up with problems within a few years, anyhow, uh, and they just keep coming back, and they eventually die when they can't do anything else." So he literally, literally stopped practice, and then proceeded through a 20-year study where he took 25 cases that were there was no other surgery that could be done for them, and but had major heart issues. And followed a um, plant-based um, a combination, plant-based uh, diet, Mediterranean diet, and they actually found funding, and actually had they exercised three times a week with qualified exercise physiologists, and they followed them for twenty years, and they found that that of, of that three died, but all the others survived and showed almost no signs of heart disease anymore. Now, it was interesting because he did that study, came out, and I remember interviewing him on it, and I said, what's the most disappointing thing about your book? And he said that nobody cares, that <laughs> our cardiac surgeons and cardiologists really don't care at all, and that basically I have proven when you have 20 cases and... Yeah, 25 cases and 22 almost have no conditions of heart disease. 20 years later following this, he said, I I think I've proven that what what you were talking, and I don't want to bring that up because your five things you were talking about is kind of what he was aiming at, right? And that Mm -hmm. you literally correct people's quality of life by changing these things. And I guess I will only mention that to you because you could hear – I, I felt terrible. I, I mean, I, you could hear it across the air, the airwaves. That when I was doing live radio back then, he was sad. I mean, he was hurt. Um, he couldn't get anybody to actually look at his his um, research. And he says, "You know, I'm a tenured professor. I'm I mean, 30 years in the medical field. I, I can't get anybody to even listen, even though the proof is here." So anyhow, with all that said, when Stroke victims go through having a stroke, whatever acute care they've had. How well do you think the physicians are doing, the follow-up care physicians are doing with not only giving them appropriate medication care, but holding them accountable to their nutrition, their, their mental uh, recovery from a chronic disease, diet, exercise? How well do you think that's being documented and encouraged by the doctors and accountability being set up that's standard and consistent?
2: Well, this is really the the area of all of my research and, and most of my work is how do you manage people after you've had a stroke? And as you mentioned, um, the medical community um, has really not focused on lifestyle. Um, it's not a big part of medical training, and um, it's not a big part of the medical practice. Um, so... This is really something that um, needs to change um, mm-hmm. if we want to improve people's quality of life and reduce further disease, cardiovascular disease in general. The, As you alluded to, people are, are not doing it very well. Mm-hmm. And I would say that it's more than just holding... It, you absolutely need to educate your patients and um, hold them accountable but because behavior change is so hard mm-hmm. and there's so many things that make it difficult in our society to eat healthy and ex- exercise regularly um, there's, you need a more robust intervention for a lifestyle change mm-hmm. and that includes a multidisciplinary team oh, of nutritionists exercise physiologists, mm-hmm. psychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there have been many different uh, models tried. And the ones that have been most effective for lifestyle change after stroke are structured um, exercise um, regimens where um, patients are working with exercise physiologists as well as um, kind of a group, uh, uh, group support settings such as There's one um, workshop called the Chronic Disease Self-Management Program Workshop. Mm -hmm. And what patients do in CDSMP or Chronic Disease Self-Management Program is they meet every week and they um, develop skills to manage their own condition and they improve their own confidence in themselves to be able to make a change. And um, we've actually done two three randomized control trials in Los Angeles of different um, uh, secondary stroke prevention interventions to prevent a stroke in people who've already had a stroke. And um, in all of them, we included a lifestyle component. Um, in the first, we had um, uh, basically group clinics as well as clinics with a provi- provider. And th- in the group group, clinics we gave education. The second one was a six-week program of a lifestyle intervention, and the third one also included home visits. Um, And what we actually did not find big differences in lifestyle for patients. And Mm -hmm. so it really speaks to how difficult it is for patients to change their behavior Mm -hmm. and the fact that you really need a very intense intervention With a lot of support and accountability, um, and helping people to develop the skills to change their lifestyle and to continue changing even if they slip up. So, a lot of people will, you know, be doing really well, and then they, let's say they they're really good with their diet, and then they slip up and they start eating the way they used to, and then they get discouraged and they're like, oh, what's the point? And go back to their previous diet so you need that support in those situations to help people to continue going yeah. and you know after a while after this intense intervention then it becomes part of daily life and it's easy to continue but that first part where you're making the lifestyle change you do need a lot
0: of support yeah no i i agree wholeheartedly yeah wholeheartedly well
1: and i think and we always run out of time we yeah. have way more questions than we have time but i the thing i think i appreciate most about what you've put together in your book is you've kind of covered the full life cycle, you know, what it is, what to expect, how to, how to get initial treatment, but then this ongoing, you know, care, and how do you, you know, kind of make life happen after stroke. Um, And I think that's, you know, you kind of have to look at all of those pieces, right. And people will be at different parts of their, you know, their journey. And I think anything that we can do to, to help, again, back to that community aspect and help people, you know, kind of make those behavioral changes and be a part of that. I think it's, it's helpful to be aware that those, that, I mean, any chronic disease really probably that's a great outlet is to yeah. have that ongoing intervention, that ongoing care. Right. Cause we see a lot of, I mean, of the, of the different types of <laughs> medical conditions that we've talked to folks about and whatever, there's definitely this theme of, you know, eating clean and exercising. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, it seems like if we could all if we could all just follow those basic <laughs> principles, we probably would see a lot less of of all of the different chronic diseases that we have in the, you know, in the United States. So, I think you have great it's a, great, it's a great structure and a great content um, to help somebody walk through, in particular, the stroke side of things. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's great.
0: You know, Doctor, I have one um, recommendation that I think really would change things, and it sounds almost a little harsh, but I believe it's about what the only thing that actually is going to make a difference, and that is would you consider that it's standard of care, that diet, um, exercise, and those type of things – is a standard of care for post-stroke victims and pre-stroke victims. Would you consider that a standard of care?
2: Yeah,
0: absolutely. So let me ask and you this. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the reason why I say this is unless we're made to do things, we have a tendency not to do it, and that's including physicians. And to me, if I line up, if I have another, uh, if I, we interview a high blood pressure medication, I mean high blood pressure, uh, specialist that deals with heart attacks. Uh, they're going to say about a lot of the same thing here. I mean, they're, they're going to say stroke, high blood pressure, da-da-da. They're going to say the same thing. To me, if it's standard of care, it wouldn't, it wouldn't that become the standard of care that then the doctor is held accountable to? Meaning, if you had a high blood pressure person and you don't put them on high blood pressure medication and the person goes out in their you know, parking lot and they die, guess what? Some people sue doctors over this stuff. It's just terrible. It's, it's unfortunate, but that's what happens. To me, this standard of care, this list that you gave, is such an ongoing normalcy of wellness in our society. It almost makes sense that if that's not covered in every visit, you would think that's a lack of standard of care. I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming right now of, the, of a different world, but... Standard of care. If the doctor doesn't ask if they're taking their high blood pressure medication, that's always met. But these others of reaffirming them, doing it, and reoccurring, encouraging. Which you and I would, you know, would take four minutes. It drives me crazy that we don't actually take that big step of saying that is standard of care. That is expected in every visit and must be part of it. That would make sense to me. But I, I, I guess I'm being silly.
2: You're making a great point, and that's why in our guidelines we do say that for high blood pressure, for cholesterol, for mm-hmm. diabetes, um, for stroke, that um, lifestyle it should always be addressed. And yep. so, um, you know, we're already doing starting to do what you're recommending in that making those quality measures yeah. for care delivery. Right. So for example, in stroke, one of the quality measures is education about smoking cessation. Sure. So we're moving towards your ideal world. <laughs> That's where great. We're actually looking at the quality of care delivered and measures include education about lifestyle. Yeah. Um, You know, holding people accountable is a—you know—there's different levels of accountability, and um, as I mentioned, behavior change is hard. So, Mm -hmm. telling them to do it may not result in behavior change, but um, it's it's absolutely a minimum that needs to be done. Is that you need to tell your patients what they need to do from a lifestyle perspective to prevent a
0: stroke. Excellent. Okay. Dr. Tufigi, thank you so much for today. We we want to uh, repeat um, and make sure that people can pick up your book at um, Amazon.com, square1publishers.com, and if there are any in your neighborhood, Barnes (laughs) Barnes & Nobles, and and hopefully some other specialty books. But uh, what you must know, and I like how you say must know about strokes, and just so you know, we absolutely love Laura Stevens. So, what a what a great individual for you to be working with.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure speaking to you today. Okay,
0: and for those that have tuned in first time, and uh, we're just glad you had tuned in. And Amy and I enjoy. Uh, meeting individuals such as um, uh, the doctor that does uh, puts together great information that's usable information, which is something we appreciate here, and we try to bring you, uh, bring this to you at the Humarian Health Podcast. So we want to thank you, and we'll look for you next time. God bless. Amy Baker, Doctor Sean Benzinger,
1: Humarian Health Podcast,
0: filling our guts
1: for the well-being of yours. That's right. Thanks for having the guts to listen to the Humarian Health Podcast. If you have things you'd like to gut check, send us an email at gutcheckhumarian.com.